Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. We're going to talk about the Jesus Principle, some of the uh, topics in the book. And it basically has to do with the secret sauce for how Jesus released greatness in ordinary people. And I believe that God has a powerful call on all of our lives and a unique imprint that we're meant to leave upon the world. And only following Jesus will release that to the max. And that's what this book is about, and that's some of what I'll talk about today. And so, as we all know, because you are a well-taught church from what I've heard uh, from the previous pastors, a theologian and scholar, so that's great. Uh, But as you all know, um, one of the last words that Jesus spoke was recorded in Matthew 28, verse 19, after he said, All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Then he said, because of that, go, therefore. And he didn't say make new converts. He said make disciples. And so we do have a a great focus in this country of gathering crowds, uh, largely driven by probably fivefold ministry evangelists who are megachurch pastors. They have the gift of gathering, uh, and they are very uh, good at bringing new people in. But what I have found, not only in this country, but all over the world, is there is a doth of true disciple making. Uh, as a matter of fact, making a disciple is an afterthought, or it's not even thought about at all. Um, or what they conceive of disciple making is just having a Bible study or shipping people to a Bible college or a, an institute in their church. And so we're going to find out is those things are all good, not to be dismissed, uh, but to be added upon based on the authentic, organic, informal method that Jesus used. And so he said, make disciples of all nations. And basically, uh, the word nation there is plural. It's talking about the uh, people groups that come from a particular ethnic background. So you remember, he was talking to Jewish people. And so basically he was saying, I want you to now go to non-Jews, to the people groups in the world, and I want you to disciple them. And now he tells us how to do that. Verse 20, he says, baptizing them, And then teaching them all things that I've commanded you, for lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the age. So basically, he's saying, I want you to take these pagans or these heathens or these people who never had a covenant with God outside of the covenant of Israel, and I want you to go to them now. It's not a uh, Jewish-centric gospel anymore. It's not just for the Hebrews. And I want you to bring them the true gospel of Christ Uh, I want you to tell them about me, Jesus is saying, and I want you to help them transition away from their false gods, their false identity, their polytheistic culture that they came from, the multitude of gods, idols, and all of that. And how is that going to happen? Well, he said, baptizing them. Someone say baptize. 
Now, he's not talking about baptizing a whole geopolitical nation, like some of my friends make a mistake and they preach discipling nations. He's actually saying, I want you to go to these people groups, but one at a time, these people have to get baptized. And what does that mean? It means that they are to leave their former identity, their former ethnic uh, identity, not that they're not black, white, green, whatever color they might come from or whatever their ethnic background is, but I want them to leave their gods. I want them to leave their former identity. Uh, and a lot of the cultures that we know of all over the world and the cultures that we know of even today and in those days were replete with false gods, with witchcraft according to the ethnic lands that they were in many gods, and there was a god for every nation, or a god for forests, a god for rivers, a god for mountains. I mean, so basically what Jesus is saying is, I want those people to hear the gospel, but what is going to happen is for them to be discipled, truly a Christ follower, they have to get water baptized. Water baptism was the official rite of passage out of the world into the kingdom. Basically, in order for you to be a disciple, you had to join the Jesus community. And so when you're water baptized, you're not only identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is to say, when you go into the water, you're identifying with his death, his burial. When you come up, you're identifying with his resurrection. As it says in Romans chapter 6, if you've been planted together with his death, you'll also be united with his resurrection. Um, but... We also understand from understanding 1 Corinthians 12 that when we are water baptized, we are also united with each other. We're baptized into one body, which means that it is an official union or a joining together of the bride of Christ or of the communion of God or the community of Jesus, whichever you want to call it, the church, the ecclesia. So, that means that it's impossible to make disciples outside of the local church. Now, this is important because you have many parachurch organizations who look at the gospel to say, hey, Jesus made disciples, but there was no church in those days. That was before the day of Pentecost. And, you know, the church is kind of like losing its juice. So we're just going to have business groups. We're going to have different groups meeting, and we're going to make disciples and uh, we don't need the local church to do this, or we'll put our material in a local church, but it's, it's almost individualistic discipleship, not understanding its corporate destiny. It's a corporate reality. That's why we have to get baptized into uh, church or into Christ to join the church. Uh, now, obviously, you can come to church and not be water baptized, so we're not saying that you're not really part of the church. But officially, according to Scripture, you have to be water baptized. So that's one thing. That shows us it's impossible, according to Jesus, to really be considered a Christ follower or a disciple if you're not part of the local church. And I know that may not be a, a shock to anybody here because you've been well taught. But across America, if I said that, it would cause reverberations out there with the individualistic spirit and the anti-church spirit and the 45 million so-called Christians that don't even belong to a local church. Uh, and some people say, well, I've been hurt. Well, 
who do you think? Pastors have been hurt. Uh, you know, we've all been hurt. Matter of fact, you're the unusual one if you've never been hurt or abused or neglected or betrayed, right? So there's never an excuse not to be part of a local church. I mean, you might need time for healing or restoration. It might be a season in your life where you don't know where to go. That's all different, but ultimately, that is God's will. So we see that being discipled has to include uh, being in a local church. And uh, what some of these parachurch organizations don't understand is that Jesus always had the local church in mind, even in the Gospels. If I had more time, I could unpack John chapter 14, 15, and 16 and prove that to you. Um, but we see that just this statement alone, being baptized and looking at the whole narrative of Scripture, shows that he meant local church. Uh, so that's one thing. And then he said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So obviously, after the initial baptism of the individual who came out of their pagan, uh, whatever it was, tribes, ethnic groups, people group, whatever it was, after they were initially baptized, then they have to have a lifetime of being taught, being disciples. So discipleship includes teaching. It includes being a part of a local church. And that's what we're going to impact today. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his best-selling book, The Cost of Discipleship, rebuked shallow Christianity that he termed cheap grace. I don't know if you ever heard that term, but uh, we have hyper-grace preaching today, but that's been going on for centuries. There's been uh, uh, heresies called antinomianism, that is uh, law. Uh, uh, the gospel without law, and uh, there's been many heretical groups that have gone on. So what we see some of the, you know, some of the things going on today is nothing new. Focusing on God's love, never talking about his holiness, his wrath, his justice, and etc. So Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, rebuked shallow Christianity that he termed cheap grace, he said, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. It is a warning that continues to be valid today. The fact that Jesus always had the church in mind uh, is shown in the Gospel of Luke, and that was part one of the narrative of Acts, the, the book of Acts, chapter one. Luke says, the former treaties that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, he was writing to this prominent guy, Theophilus. What a name. Maybe if I have another child, I'll call him Theophilus. I don't know. Uh, Theo, obviously God. But uh, he says, this former treaties that I wrote, and he's talking about the gospel of Luke, spoke about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Someone say the word began. So by implication, he's framing the book of Acts by saying Luke was part one. That was what he began to do. The book of Acts is what he continues to do through the church. So he's showing that the church was always in the heart and mind of Jesus and it was always connected, and it was literally, you know, Acts was literally part two of Luke. So you can't even read Luke without Acts and Acts without Luke. 
That's what he's saying. And so he's connecting the two because you cannot disconnect Jesus from the church. And you have a lot of people today who are attempting to follow Jesus without the body of Christ. And it would be like following a head without the neck down. It just doesn't make any sense. So as you could guess, I have a strong, if you know the, the term ecclesiology, I have a strong understanding of local church. As a matter of fact, what makes this book so different from many other books on the prophetic is it's strewn with a strong understanding of local church. And it will, even if someone wasn't interested in the prophetic, if they read this, they would be more committed to their local church after reading this. And so we see that Jesus always had the church in mind. The book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do. And Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he made it very clear that this is a way of life. Someone say way of life. The American gospel made the gospel an enterprise. The Romans made it an institution. Jesus said it's a way of life. And that's what these principles are all about. It's not separated from uh, your workplace, your church place, Sunday from Monday. The church gathered becomes the church scattered. The church gathered here today is the church gathered on Monday. Same thing. No difference, right? And so it's a way of life. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. So truth is not mere apologetics or theology. It's collapsed down to a person, Jesus. You separate Jesus from theology or ecclesiology or apologetics, you don't really have truth. It's all personified in one person, Jesus. And he says, I am the life. Again, it's a way of life. It's power of the Holy Spirit. It's eternal life. But it's also uh, a way we live. And so how did he walk this out? And how did he create the greatest movement in the history of the world? Uh, right now, we probably have uh, almost 3 billion Christians um, Men, 2,020 years after his resurrection, how did he do that? Wow, let's look at some principles. There's no way I can get through all of them today, although pastor said I only have four hours, so maybe I could do it. I don't know. Um, but let's look at a few of the, I think it was about 13 principles in the book. Number one, he processed them. He said in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, follow me and I will make you, in the Greek, to become a fisher of men. Wow. And so he's saying right off the bat, this is a process. Somebody say process. And, you know, you're not going to be super Christian overnight. You know, I thought I was a spiritual man of God. I was praying three hours a day and reading my Bible. I finished the whole year of Bible school. I was saved about two and a half years and then I got married, and I found that I still wasn't sanctified. <laughs> oh, my God. I found out I still had a bad temper. And I would break chairs 
we would save about, I mean, we were married three or four months, and I would break chairs. It was better I'd break a chair than go to my wife and try doing anything to her, right? I just got frustrated. One time I threw my Bible, and instead of going down, it went up, and it went right through the window and broke the window. Um, my landlord said, what happened? And I said, and I lied to her, and I said, oh, I, you know, I tripped. You know, what am I going to say? I threw a Bible out the window? Um, but, uh, you know, and once I had children, that was another level of sanctification. You know, I thought I was, we were like two single kids. We could do anything we wanted. And then number one came, then number two, then three, then four, then five. And then once we thought that was over with, now grandchildren are always in the house, you know. Um, but it's a, it's a blessing. But anyway, the point is... <laughs> I've lived my life. I paid the price, and now, whoa. <laughs> I'm a man of 63, and I'm still with these babies. But uh, no, it's, it's all good. It's great. But the, uh, the fact is it's a process, and every part of our life, we're challenged. I remember one time, um, this one guy was so, he was condemning himself. He's saying, you know, I'm battling with things I never battled with before and, and, and even things having to do with lust and other things. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about your story. What has changed in the last few months? And then I found out that he had a higher level of responsibility. I said, new level, new devil. It's not like you don't love God as much as you used to. Now the atmosphere is, is more uh, replete with, with resistance. And so everything's a process. He said um, in John 8, uh, he said, if you continue in my word, right, then you will be my disciple indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, that's, wow, that, that kind of syntax and the way he connected that is kind of like, that's kind of crazy to me in a sense because we think truth is just black and white and we just have no nuance and we just say, well, this is true, this is not true. But what Jesus is saying is, of course, there's absolute truth, the Trinity, heaven, hell, eternal life. But what he's saying is regarding us is we will know the truth as we continue in the journey. You see that? John chapter 8, he said... You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But he said, if you continue in my word, then you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth. Meaning, as I continue in my journey with Jesus, I'm going to be confronted with new realities and challenges and even thoughts and even philosophies and different things. And what he's saying is, if I can deal with that and continue, that I will continue to have truth unfolding to me. He will always meet us where we're at. And his understanding inside of us, if we yield to him, will always be far greater than any challenge we will face. And that's why you have some people, they're following Christ the first three years, the fourth year, they fall off in a ditch, right? They didn't continue in his words, so they didn't know the truth. You have to stay with it in order to know it, right? So it's a process, and that should help all of us because God may give you a prophetic word, and a lot of times prophets miss it when they put a time period on it. They tell you 
you know, by this date something will happen or, you know, in March this will happen. And sometimes they really miss it. And sometimes we may get a word and we think it's going to happen automatically. But God is not in a rush. And he is not going to elevate us until we are ready. And that's just how it is. In the New York City school system, they will put kids and they'll promote them from first grade to second grade to third grade. By the time they're in the eighth grade, they don't even know how to read their diploma. Because unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not the greatest system oftentimes. Not every teacher or every school, but many of them. God isn't like that. If you don't pass the test, you're not going to the next level. And so being a disciple is a process Follow me and I'll make you to become. It's always becoming something. Who I am now is not only going to be in six months. Hopefully I'll continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what happens is if we're going to make disciples, we need to teach them this. We need to teach them that it's a process. We need to teach them that even though you're instantly saved, your emotions have to catch up with your spirit, man. The emotions take a long time, right? It, renewing, of the, renewing of the mind is a process. So even though you're saved, you're not fully sanctified in experience, right? So I'm saved, but I'm continually being sanctified. And that sanctification is going to continue. And so the word disciple implies being a student. It implies having a teacher. It implies somebody that you're sitting under, which means that there's certain things I cannot process by myself. I need somebody else. And I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care if you're the most anointed man or woman of God, the greatest prophet or theologian in the world. You need somebody else or other people to speak into you. You might have the greatest hitter in the major leagues. They all have hitting coaches. Uh, All the NBA players have, have shooting coaches, right? Everybody needs people from the outside to speak into them, to help them process what's going on in their life. And so when we bring somebody into uh, the faith, the first thing is we're called to help them understand what they're becoming and to give them grace and patience to understand it's not going to happen overnight. Then Jesus said, the second thing, I'll make you to become a fisher of men. And that has to do with influence. That means that men by implication, people or women as well, will follow you. So what you say, how you live will have an impact in such a way that other people will begin to follow you. And so what Jesus wants is for us to make disciples who will disciple other people. Uh, I I, I don't see a lot of first-generation discipleship, but I see even less in the way of disciples who make other disciples. I would say in the best churches, if 25% are doing that, you're doing great. Uh, 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 Most people haven't even made one disciple. Most people haven't won even one person to Christ, never mind make a disciple. But what we need to do is have a goal. Everybody here, whether you're called to be a pastor, whether you're called to be a full-time missionary, whether you're called to be 
in the church place or not, every one of us are called to have spiritual children. Every one of us are called to have a disciple, at least one person that we're pouring into. That was the last, that was the parting words of Jesus. He said, go and make disciples. I have all the power. I have all the authority. Now this is what I want you to do. I don't care how much you soak. I don't care how many times you've gotten slain in the spirit or you get prophetic words. God doesn't really care if you get slain in the spirit. He cares about what you do when you get up. It doesn't matter how many angel visitations and how many times you think you've been caught up to heaven. Most of the people always having angel visitations have no fruit that I know of anyway. The bottom line is, are you making disciples? Are you pouring your life into other people? Do you have at least one person you're doing that? Well, you know, I don't have my act together. Well, someone will help you get your act. That means you're prime candidate to get discipled, but there's no perfect disciple. And as you begin pouring it to somebody else, you get transformed more than that person. Same way, I couldn't get transformed as a single man the way I was when I got married. Now I'm responsible for my wife and trying to gel two people to be one flesh with two different personalities. Um, there's no way I would have grown to be the man I am without my wife and then having children. And um, when it comes to pouring into other people, the teacher learns more than the student. You want to learn something, teach it. It's amazing. And when uh, one time in John chapter 4, it says how the disciples had some meat for him. They went to the local McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or whatever they went. And they wanted to give Jesus food. And Jesus said, he had just ministered to the woman at the well. I love his answer. He said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. There are so many Christians who are running around trying to get fed. It's all about me. I, me, my. I come to church so I can feel God's presence. I can do this. I can get this. I can get a word. At the end of the day, if you're saved for about a year, sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's less, and you don't start making a disciple or volunteering in the church and serving, there's going to come a point where it doesn't matter how great the preaching is, you're not going to grow. Jesus said, my meat, in other words, what feeds me, is to do the will. It's not just reading the word and hearing the word. It's now acting on it. And there's no greater way of acting on it than making disciples. And so what he did was he saw what they were going to be in the future. And that's one of the things we need to do. We're going to minister to people from incredible brokenness. They don't know what God's will is for them. They can't even see anything good for the, their own life. Or they come from systemic poverty and, and generational curses and, and paganism and blindness. And they need somebody who saw the light, somebody's walk with God to actually reorientate them and shape them and even help them understand a new identity. They can't do it on their own. 
And that's where you come in. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you to become. A disciple maker has a sense, a prescience in their spirit, an intuitive sense of what that person's supposed to do or be. At least in general, we should know by the word that to grow as a child of God. And that's so powerful. Imagine you partnering together with Jesus and helping to shape another human being. The greatest joy I have, and I'll quote, uh, what is it, Second uh, John or 3 John, I get those two confused. John said, I have no greater joy than I see my children walk according to the truth. And that's how I feel. I don't need to be in the front, I don't need to have all the limelight, but pouring into, with me, it happens to be pastors and apostolic leaders, when I see them flourish and create their own movements and have a great um, influence in their church and making a difference, my joy is complete. I love it. That's what feeds me. And so there is something that God is calling you to walk into. It's as joyful as being a physical, biological parent, spiritual parent. It's amazing. Being a disciple, be a disciple maker, a mentor. So he saw where, where, they, where they were to be in the future. And um, it's almost like, I, I would say, I don't know what the stats are, but 80% of the information we get is negative, I think, right? Watch the news, bad news sells. They, some, sometimes they're constantly pumping up COVID because it sells. Or, you know, I remember as a kid, we would have a lot of blizzards and we went to school anyway. Now in New York, you get three inches of snow. Oh, a huge storm is coming. Don't go out. Don't go to church, especially, right? And uh, it's like, man, I'm old school. I mean, we'd walk, we never canceled services except when it was impossible to get in the door because it was so much snow. But, uh, you know, everything is just blown up, and especially negative things, whether it's gossip, slander, people putting you down, you putting yourself down. One of the key ingredients of making a disciple is giving people affirmation, seeing who God made them to be. It's not like you're overlooking sin or you don't correct it, but you see what's really in there, and you call it out, and you affirm it. The power of affirmation. I've had spiritual fathers where one word could make me or break me. Now I would hang on their words. Death and life is in the power of the tongue. And some of these people just need affirmation. Even Jesus didn't minister until he came up out of the waters of baptism and he heard the voice of his father. And he said, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. Notice the father affirmed him and said, I'm well pleased before he healed, before he preached, before he cast out demons, before he began his ministry, before he went to the cross, the father said, you're already well pleasing to me. And the first thing the devil did Playing on those words, when he went into the wilderness, 
And by the way, he was prepared for spiritual warfare because his father affirmed him. You have a lot of unaffirmed men, even in ministry, that are not ready for trials and tests because they never had a father speaking into them. They never had somebody affirming them. They never had somebody bringing healing to their brokenness, to their self-doubt, to their orphan spirit, their spirit of rejection. And so when temptation came, they needed that feeling of being loved and respected and so they are more prone and vulnerable to committing adultery because somebody paid attention to them and it helped their ego helped them feel good not an excuse but put too many broken people who have great gifts and abilities but are wounded and never been healed up putting too many unaffirmed people in leadership in business in pol look at politics oh my god we can go there not just the church, everywhere. We promote them because of their gifts. But when they fall, we forsake them, right? And the first thing the devil did when Jesus was in the wilderness, remember, he just heard his father say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before he did anything, then he was led by the spirit into the wilderness and the first thing the devil said is, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Meaning the father said, you are my son. Not maybe, not perhaps, not 90%. You are. And I love you and I accept you even before you did anything for me. But the devil said, if you are the son Prove it by doing a miracle, performance orientation. That's another lesson. After every life-altering prophetic word, you're going to get another word almost immediately after challenging that word, confusing you. I deal with that in my book. And so one of the ways we make disciples is we have to affirm who God has made somebody. Because they're not getting any other voices. And they're not ready for the warfare and the intense atmosphere that's out there. I'm only on the second point, and my God, maybe I'll try to go to number three. I think I have three and a half hours left because there's no clock, so I have no idea how much longer I have. Um, you can just wind me up and I'll keep preaching. But don't worry, if I look at my watch, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but maybe I'll get through one more point here. The other thing Jesus did, he changed their identity. When Andrew brought um, Peter to Jesus, we read this in John chapter 1, verse 42. Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Wow. And so what does that mean? Jesus had to change his identity for him to walk in his destiny. And every one of us have baggage when we first come to Christ. We have nicknames, we have identities from the past, we have th things we've done, we try to hold on to. After our conversion, 
God has called us to walk in a way where it doesn't mean you have to legally change your name, but you start thinking of yourselves totally different. And I could tell you funny stories of my old friends when they'd meet me and they'd see me, and uh, they still looked at me the way I used to be. But I'm not going to go there. I don't have much time. But it's, some of them is really funny, some of the things they said. But, uh, but anyway, um, at least I'm laughing. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, at least I made myself happy today. Made myself happy. That's a good one. Okay. So we all have baggage, but, and we all have an identity that's false, a false self. One of the greatest things that happens is God brings us into our true self. That's the role of someone who works alongside of God, discerning the true self in people, looking past all the brokenness, the baggage and all that, helping them to see out of the rubble of their life who God really made them to be. Wow, that's powerful. Changing their identity. Oh, what a joy. And I've seen that happen with so many different people. Um, and... Um, Man, it's so easy to judge people after or according to the flesh, right? What we have to do in the kingdom is see what God has made them to be in the spirit. And I remember when we first started ministering in Sunset Park, it was one of the worst neighborhoods in, in New York, probably on par with the, the worst. Abandoned buildings everywhere, gangs I saw a 12-year-old with a shotgun shooting at the rival gang. He was part of the assassinators. He was shooting at La Familia, the family. Um, and uh, they were just fighting. And shooting was so common that guy almost in the range of fire didn't even duck. He just said, put that thing away. He cussed. But, and uh, I was just standing about three feet away from him and just watching what was going on. Then I just kept on witnessing to somebody. I uh, saw people dead in the streets, but we, you know, through a course of uh, bringing in about 500 kids every week for 18 years, preaching the gospel, we had four school buses, vans, a large army of people helping, uh, a lot of street meetings. One year we closed off 37 blocks in one summer and showed the cross and the switchblade and preached, and I saw whole blocks come to Christ. Within about 12 years, we saw the whole community transformed without gentrification. We saw the gospel of the kingdom has the power not only to bring sinners into the kingdom, but to bring systemic change. And uh, we saw cycles of poverty broken. There was a time when I was the only homeowner in the, in the church, and we saw so many people become homeowners and become entrepreneurs because we preached the gospel of the kingdom in the church. And it took their identity being changed and shaped. It took many of us bringing people in our house. And uh, I'll end with this. One of the principles is Jesus was very intimate with people. You see uh, the uh, picture of uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper where John was sitting at the breast of Jesus, right? Wow, that speaks a million words. Jesus didn't just love them, he liked them. He was emotionally connected to them. He did life with them. As a matter of fact, one of his last words on the cross was to John, behold your mother. He was concerned about his mother 
and his mother, he said, behold your son. It was a family. He did life. He didn't just, he didn't say, follow me and you'll have a Wednesday night Bible study. If you're going to truly make disciples, we're going to do life with people. Some of the greatest disciples we made, we had to take them in our house. When we first started ministering, I knew that just a weekly sermon wasn't enough. The men came in from broken families. They didn't even know who their real father was. 85% of the families were broken. Five kids, five different last names. And I realized, my God, the main call I'm going to have is to be their father, my wife, their mother. And just hugging a young man can break generations of rejection in an orphan spirit. That hug was worth more than a thousand sermons. And the greatest title I ever had in my life was not bishop or doctor, but poppy or dad. Most of those men called me dad, called my wife, mom. And to this day, we have those kind of relationships, even if they're not in our church now. So in closing, there's no greater call than for you to make disciples. This is a church with a pastor who has a burden, a passion, a fire, making disciples, because he understands the superficiality of the much of the church, not all of it. And he knows that, you know, you could have a huge barn filled with wood, hay, and stubble and straw goes up in smoke in one day. But if you're going to build on silver, gold, and precious metals, that's a church that makes disciples. And I pray that this church will continue that legacy, but go to another level. God bless you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.